Welcome back to the Future in Focus podcast by LRQA, or if you're new here, thank you. In this episode, presenter Holly Plackett is joined by Stuart Wright, Global Head of Governance, Risk and Compliance at Netitude, an LRQA business. And returning is guest Kimberly Coffin, Global Technical Director of Supply Chain at LRQA. In this episode, we ask Stuart and Kimberly why cybercrime should be a well-considered factor in any food defence programme and discuss the potential implications on food safety in the case of cyber attack. Thanks for joining us again, Kimberly And Stuart, this is your first time appearing on the podcast, so thanks very much for joining. Stuart, could I start by asking you to briefly introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Holly. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Stuart Wright. Uh, thanks for asking to join today. I'm the Head of Governance, Risk and Compliance at Netitude. So my role here is to oversee Netitude's GRC team. So my team provide consultancy services to our clients. Uh, typically, we're covering areas in cybersecurity and compliance domains. So that's areas like cybersecurity maturity, PCI DSS, so that's consultancy around and auditing around credit card security. We also work with our clients in areas like ISO 27001, risk management and security awareness training for end user employees and teaching them about security good practices. I've spent around 10 years uh, working in consultancy, uh, particularly around cybersecurity. And more generally, I've spent 20 years working across the, the IT industry in a number of different technical roles. So thanks for inviting me along today. I look forward to hopefully sharing some of my knowledge and experience with you. Great, thanks. I'll jump straight into the questions now. So cybercrime has been a long-standing risk for businesses across all sectors. Stuart, could you shed some light on the type of attacks we are seeing, who these attacks are targeting and the damage they can have on businesses? Sure. So cybercrime is a problem across all industries, really. So from, from the perspective of the criminal, the attacker, um, they're typically not necessarily targeting particular organizations. So more so they're interested in, in the low-hanging fruit, so the softer targets that could perhaps be easier, less difficult to attack in the first place. So they're not necessarily concerned about sectors. It, it can be fairly indiscriminate, fairly opportunistic. We see criminals taking advantage of fairly fundamental flaws. So that's things like out-of-date systems, out-of-date applications, things not configured correctly. These are essentially flaws where you would say they're easy to predict uh, and, and controls are relatively easier to put in place to address those. It's the cyber equivalent of unlocked doors, unlocked windows, not being closed properly, things that are quite just easy to attack. So as I say, they would be fairly opportunistic. Attackers often aren't the nation state level that perhaps we think about, although that, of course, that does happen too. But in terms of the initial compromise of an organisation, this may well be someone who only has a fairly basic skill set and they're going to exploit those those common vulnerabilities. We're generally thinking about criminals who really their end goal is to extract money from you. So it's not maybe like it was 10 years ago where it was about you know kudos and causing disruption and kind of showing off skills. This is more about how can the criminal obtain cash, extract cash from you. They're going to come from different angles. So you know there are going to be attacks that are about things like trade secrets and patents and so on. But, but thinking about the ones, you know, within the professional world that we most commonly see, they are often about ways of getting money. So 
these are things we'll have heard of, like like ransomware, like deploying ransomware, locking an organization out of their of their files and their systems, and then demanding some some money to provide that access back and to restore that access. And really the impact we talked about the impact there is around the loss of access to your systems and that you need to run your business. So you mentioned the damage, the impact that these events can have. We might see that in, in many different ways. There's financial impact. So you've got the loss of revenue, whatever the incident type, if your systems are down, then you may well be losing revenue. That's quite a direct cost, of course, but there are going to be indirect costs as well. So that's things like the effort that goes into recovery costs for engaging external experts and consultants and people with specialist skills around things like forensics, disaster recovery, getting those systems back online and so on. You've then got things like the cost and resource drains on your own team. So that might be rebuilding your IT systems and your networks and your infrastructure. It's really not an exaggeration to say that sometimes the best thing to do after an attack can be to rebuild many of your systems from scratch. So that's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you money to keep your teams busy, which means they're not doing their day job and the things that you rely on to keep the business operating. And you've then got, I guess, from an impact perspective, concerns around reputation. You've got things like your consumer confidence and, and your investor confidence as well. And the, the other important thing that often gets people's attention when thinking about the impact of cyber breach is, is, is regulatory fines. It's fines for the regulators. And that's, that's particularly a concern if there's any kind of personal data involved, which may not be the case when we're talking about you know, environments being unavailable. I've, I've focused, I guess, on relatively untargeted attacks in, in answering this question. As I say, there's an opportunistic attacks where the, the aim of the criminal is just to extract cash. Another angle, perhaps one that's as bad, if not worse, and more serious, is attacks that can impact on confidentiality of data. So that's exfiltrating information, maybe publishing information online. And then there's the data itself, the information itself, and making changes to it. We, we rely on data. We rely on the data being accurate. If anything impacts on that data and means that we can't trust the data, we can't trust that it's accurate, the impact of those kind of attacks perhaps isn't as obvious and isn't as immediate, but the consequences can be, you know, in, in many ways worse than information simply not being there at all. Because if we can't rely on, on the accuracy of data, then we may make bad decisions that could have impact elsewhere in the business. Great, thanks, Stuart. So we know that these attacks are happening across the globe at varying levels of severity. Kimberly, in your opinion, do you think the food industry in general is as protected against cyber threats as much as they ought to be? Cyber threats and the potential impact to, say, food production and ultimately consumers are not a common topic of conversation amongst food safety professionals. So based on that fact, I would have to say no. And why is it so important that businesses within the food sector have a robust food defence programme that includes cybercrime? Great question. Um, but you know, just piggybacking off of a number of the things that, that Stuart's already talked about with regards to the types of attacks and, and the impact on businesses, you know, given that the food sector is increasingly focused on the use of tech to address challenges such as the talent gap that all are experiencing, as well as you know, really looking to gain operational efficiencies in order to keep um, their cost of productions low, as well as going kind of really going digital, if you will, to deliver smarter food safety, you know, through um, the use of technology and digital solutions to improve risk management controls, such as real-time monitoring of our processes, our critical processes, collaborating with key suppliers to actually make a 
a more smooth and open and transparent means of communicating needs and expectations um, about uh, the materials and or the products that our suppliers might be um, manufacturing, as well as you know, more holistically, just really transparency across enabling transparency across the supply chain, um, both up and downstream from our manufacturing processes. Um, as food safety professionals, we need to recognize that these changes in how we collect, manage, and share critical information about products and our processes add another layer of risk. There's additional threats really associated each and every time we actually open up a, another door into our, into our operations. And as such, these need to be considered to ensure that we're prepared to respond. Um, and when I think about kind of that response and, and being prepared, you know, there's no better way um, for us to actually do that than through our food defense programs. You know, GFSI benchmark standards provide a framework to ensure that we do this. So it's important that those food defense and incident management programs that those standards require really feature broadly in what we're doing and, and that we're really thinking about it in the context of all of the layers of risk um, to our products and processes to ensure that we're assessing and evaluating the risk impact on our business as well as on our products and on the consumer. And cyber crime threats are one layer of risk that I think there is sorely lacking in attention through um, food defense programs holistically. Great, thanks Kimberly. LRQA recently hosted a webinar in which you both discussed a very similar topic to what we're talking about today. In that webinar, you asked the audience some poll questions and if it's all right, I'd like to spend a bit of time looking at these questions and the audience's responses. So the first question we asked was about the use of technology and how companies are expanding their use of technology to more effectively manage operational risk. 83% of respondents indicated that they are employing one or more of the technologies listed in their business and 27% of respondents are using technology to manage risks or to collaborate with suppliers. Can we talk about this and what this means in terms of cyber risks, Stuart? One of, one of the interesting points that came up and Kimberly just touched on this, uh, but Kimberly also helped me understand a bit more about this during the last webinar as well in the context of food safety, is that increasing use of real-time controls and monitoring within the industry. So I understand that to be the use of things like sensors, cameras, and other devices that are capturing data and then using that data to make decisions and to control other systems or to provide some kind of ongoing monitoring around the environment. These devices, we often refer to them as Internet of Things or IoT devices. And really, these are devices that are designed to do a particular function. So that might be like, for example, security camera or maybe sensor. The user, so the business that, that owns that device, that installs that device, they will often have no control or very little control over how it actually works. So they might not be able to determine how it's configured or how it's secured or updated and those kind of things that are really important if we're trying to secure our systems. Essentially, we're talking about sealed or self-contained proprietary systems that we install onto our networks, but they are effectively completely beyond our control. And all we really do is we provide them with power and we provide them with some kind of network connectivity so that they can connect out to the vendors that perhaps manage them for us. There are a number of layered risks around these devices that we need to be thinking about. So there's the reliance on the vendor to keep it up to date in the first place, to keep that device secure. But then you need to think about, is their business sustainable? Is the vendor sustainable? Will they be around in four or five years? Will they still be updating that product? Will they still be supporting it and giving us the security patches we need? 
And then I think about technical concerns. So that's things like, are we giving those vendors remote access to those devices? Do they manage them remotely? Do they monitor them remotely? And if they do, which is often the case, are those vendors themselves secure? Is there the possibility that some kind of incident within those vendors could then impact on you as the end user of that device? The other thing we need to think about as well with vendors having access to our networks is could that vendor be a supply chain threat? Are they a stepping stone that somebody could use to attack our environment? In other words, could somebody accidentally or deliberately use that vendor and then have some kind of impact on our network and our environment? So I guess, you know, in terms of managing cyber risks, it's about having those checks in place and having the right checks in place around the technologies we use. So you need to start that well before you actually procure these devices, systems, applications. Part of your risk management needs to be due diligence and looking at those vendors, look at their technologies and asking the right questions before you connect them, not after you connect them. And you need to ensure that those vendors have the right controls in place. And you need to think about the future as well and think about if we're introducing real-time monitoring systems into our environment, other types of technology, and we're trying to manage the operational risk going forwards, not just at this point in time, can we avoid vulnerabilities in the future and keep them up to date and secure? The next question we asked the audience was who in their organisation is responsible for cyber risk management across their supply chain? And 61% of respondents indicated that IT or security teams are responsible for cyber risk management. Kimberly, does this approach elevate the risk impact of food safety? It is easy to devolve responsibility to IT or systems um, when we think about kind of cyber attack and, and, and cyber crime. You know, after all, they are the techies. But as food safety professionals, we need to understand that also means that their focus is on mitigating risk related to system availability or, or system management or how the systems function. And they're very much less likely to understand the risk impact of a cyber attack on confidential information, our IP, our labels, our recipes, as well as on the accuracy of the information that's being captured. You know, that information that we use as part of our due diligence defense with regards to the safety of food. You know, when we think about kind of those two key areas of, of information and information security, you know, they are directly related to product risk impact. You know, they're the things that are going to make a difference with regards to the safety of the food that we produce. That's where we as food safety professionals come in. We are best placed in our organizations to assess and manage the risks to our products and our processes and ultimately our consumers. So by taking an active role, it's really essential we're the ones with the responsibility with regards to minimizing the risk of food safety. And as such, we need to be really clear and really understand how those systems work, understand what the true impact would be of a cyber breach. And we need to be asking questions and working in collaboration with our IT and systems teams within our business. Thanks, Kimberly. Finally, we asked the audience how frequently their company tests their food defence programme specifically for cyber incident impact. Now, I found this response to be quite startling. 67% of respondents said that they do not test their incident response or food defence programmes specifically for cyber. What do we think about this omission? What this tells me is that there's only a minority of businesses, food businesses, that is, that have considered the risk impact to products from a cyber attack really what that does then is it really opens up those businesses, one, to have really a lack of ability to actually identify an attack 
if it has actually occurred. And even more importantly, really very little preparedness or testing of their preparedness in the event that an attack has occurred. We talk about from a food safety management perspective, you know, the importance to actually undertake ongoing evaluations of the risks to our business. And so from my perspective, um, a food defense program or an incident response program that hasn't considered a potential area of risk allows us for a significantly elevated risk to our business and our ability to actually take the right action to actually protect the safe production of food, as well as our brand and the consumer. Clearly, the use of technology is increasing. The actual poll questions indicated that we're still taking some very traditional thinking within the food sector um, about whose responsibility it is to ensure that we're managing the risk from cyber breaches by through IT and systems people. And really, from a food safety professional perspective, we need to be thinking more closely about how we use the tools that we have and ensuring that um, we are well aware of all layers of risk to the production of safe food. And Stuart, can I ask you what would be the best practice approach here? Sure. And I think picking up on something Kimberly just talked about, I'm, I'm not saying here that our IT IT teams, IT folk aren't focused on security, but without defining requirements for how we manage and protect things, how can we expect the appropriate controls to be in place? You know, the IT folk are there to manage our systems, to, to make sure they're running, to make sure they're available when we need them. But we shouldn't assume that those teams automatically know about the data or the criticality of those systems. And I think the same applies really here in terms of testing response plans. I was fairly surprised at that statistic. You know, more generally, we see our clients are perhaps more aware of the need to test plans. I see many organizations now that do have cyber-related plans compared to maybe five or six years ago, where the focus of plans was predominantly on technology. How do we get networks online? How do we recover our email or our files? But we know those plans rarely get followed to the letter and that they're rarely comprehensive the first time you actually need to use them. In fact, I'd, I'd say that in a cyber and IT context, there will almost certainly be some fairly significant emissions from the first draft of any kind of incident response plan. Organizations, they need to be testing those response plans and they need to be testing them regularly. And they need to be thinking about technologies changing all the time. So are our business processes. So are the things we rely on, particularly with third parties. And they are more and more something we need to think about when it comes to testing incident response plans as well. So we would um, we encourage our clients to have incident response playbooks and we ask for them to common incident types. So that's how would we respond if this happens and this might be a ransomware attack or it might be um, one of our systems is taken offline by somebody malicious or it could be some of our data has been leaked to the internet. These playbooks and the scenarios they cover, what we suggest and what we recommend people do is they involve people outside of just IT and security because people in the wider business need to be involved in how we would respond if these incidents actually happen. And it's also really important to learn. So learn from those tests, learn from real incidents as well, and, and learn from near misses. And when you do those tests, you know, make sure that those tests are real. You know, they're not paper exercises where you sit and read the policy and sign it off for the next year, right? You need to conduct tabletop exercises. You need to simulate a real incident and you play out that scenario as though it were real. And you see, how would we cope? Would the right people do the right things at the right time? 
And where that goes wrong, where you find gaps, you can then learn from that and tweak and adjust those plans. I really would highly recommend that I think it was 60 something percent of the people that said they aren't including cyber in their testing approach, that they do begin to do so, that they begin to work on those plans and begin to see where some of the gaps are. Thanks for listening to the Future in Focus podcast. Please visit our homepage on Spotify to listen to more episodes and stay up to date with new releases. And to find out more about LRQA services, please visit www.lrqa.com. Music